Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31, and we'll be reading verses 1 through to 21. This is the reading of God's word. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all his wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field, and said to them, I see your father's attitude that, is not, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and has changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the stripe shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus, God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flocks were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. He said, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or an inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has entirely also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely, all the wealth which God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Then Jacob arose 
and put his children and his wives upon camels. And he drove away all his livestock and all his property, which he had gathered, his acquired livestock, which he had gathered, and Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. This is the reading of God's word. Call upon the pastor to come and bring the message. Thank you. The, uh, we weren't thinking, you know, about Rachel stealing gods and stuff like that when we named her. Just, but uh, no, uh, the, the name Rachel has deep significance to us, and it is sort of a family uh, little prodding that comes up when we see these words uh, written about Rachel. It is a fascinating account. It's a fascinating account because we learn how in a passage of time, Jacob, who if you recall, was told by his mother to go to uh, his uncle Laban. And do you recall, it was just go there for a few days. And uh, we read that uh, way back uh, I think it's Genesis 24, so 27. And uh, Rebecca gave these words of counsel and, and said, uh, stay with him a few days until uh, your brother's fury subsides. And a few days became a few months, became a few years, became seven years, became 14 years, and then... Uh, another passage of time has gone by and Jacob is still where he uh, doesn't want to be and hasn't moved. And it's important for us to get a picture of what takes place in the life of this man and the reality that God calls him to be separate. That was our closing point last week, if you will recall is the necessity of separation. That we may not be comfortable with that in our culture where we're told from the get-go we're to accept everything that happens around us and we're to accept it without question. And that's very much what our culture is doing in our day and age. That no matter what the culture uh, foists upon God's people, we're to just sort of nod. Remember those little bubblehead dolls? Uh, lot they still see them. I saw a car with one of those, a dog in the back, nodding at me all the way to Leamington. And uh, that's kind of scary to, to still have a bubble thing or bobblehead uh, in your car. And I'm not talking about the driver. And so we, we have this picture of Jacob, and he's in this situation where it has actually become intolerable. He's living in a pagan culture, he knows better. He's been established, and here he is. And it is time for him to move on. 
And sometimes it takes a lot of dynamite to get a person to get up and to get moving. And so we have this picture as we begin tonight uh, and we look at what is taking place. You recall how verse 43 in the previous chapter tells us that the man Jacob became exceedingly prosperous <clears throat> and had large flocks and female and male servants <clears throat> and camels and donkeys. So we have this picture of this man who comes basically with nothing and he gets more and more and more. And it's a picture of God's care <clears throat> for this man. Now, as we see this playing through, there is this realization that things are going south very fast. And uh, <clears throat> for some of you, that doesn't mean a lot as an expression, uh, but it means it's going downhill. And <clears throat> so we have Jacob, and he hears the words of Laban's sons, and you notice how he's observing what's going on here. He knows inside that he should be moving, that he should be separating him himself. He's staying put. And it's one of those uncomfortable things where he sort of has in his mind, I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be here, but here I am, I guess I'll make the best of it. Surrounded by idolatry, sent there for a short period of time, we're now working on uh, seven years plus seven years, and now we're working on, 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 on going, heading for 20. And he's been there for just about 20 years. Now he's worn out his welcome. And that's what exactly has taken place here. It's very easy, isn't it, to fritter away time. Some of you remember uh, the song Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. And, uh, okay, we have a couple of Otis Redding fans here. And uh, sitting on the dock of the bay, and I'll be sitting until the day is done, watching the tide go in, and I'll watch it go away again, and so forth and so on. That sounds very nice on the Amherst Shore, incidentally, to just be watching the tide goes way out a few kilometers, and you watch it, and then it comes back in. And you say, well, that was very good to see the tide. It's out, it's in, it's out, it's in, it's, that's good. The problem is a lot of tides have come out and in, and Jacob's gone nowhere. Now his welcome is wearing real thin. And so we have a picture of this in verse 31 and in verse 32. Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and from what belonged to our father and he's made all this wealth. The realization from the previous chapter is this. Laban is begging Jacob to stay. And there is that admission that all that I have has come because of your presence in my family, your work for my family. And he's saying to him, remember, name your price. He does a little Monty Hall. And he says, here it is. Here's, here's the offer. What is it that you'd like? Name it. It's yours. And Jacob has named uh, a price, and the price was nothing. I don't want any money. I'll stay. I'll do the shepherding thing. And, and, but I, I need to go. But he needed to go in, in year 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And he's still there. And now they don't want him there. And Laban doesn't want him there. The, the sons are maligning him. Jacob now sees the attitude of Laban. And it is not friendly toward him as it was formerly. And now we have something fascinating happening here. And it's this. We see the beginnings of the Lord intervening in Jacob's life again. You notice there's a certain time in which God seems 
to absent himself from his people. I remember there was a doctor by the name of Henry Brandt. Now, some of you are saying, Dr. Brandt, did he have a practice in town here? No, uh, it was on the back page of Power for Living magazine, right? Yeah, good, okay. Two of us remember him. Uh, and, and fascinatingly, I'd never heard the man. I was just a kid when I first started seeing this, and so was she, when, when we just started seeing Dr. Brandt on the back of the Power magazine. And one day, I, I'm driving, and on the radio is Dr. Brandt. Never heard the man in my life. Heard him once and only once. And his opening line was this. God doesn't mind putting you on hold for a while. That was his opening line. I remember an opening line like that. And he started pointing out the clear teaching of God's word while people are going around saying, I wonder what God wants me to do. I wonder what God wants me to do. I wonder what I should be doing. I wonder what I should be doing now. What should I be doing next? What should I be doing after that? And, and, and you're praying and praying and praying, and you're looking for the lightning bolt answer. And it doesn't come. And the realization is this, that God doesn't mind putting his people on hold and doesn't mind allowing them to stew and to go through situations which otherwise they would not have learned the important lessons of life. Uh, God didn't mind putting Jonah in the belly of the fish. Imagine what three days were like. He didn't mind allowing him to live in that sloppy, grungy place. He didn't mind allowing him to, to go through that turmoil. He didn't mind allowing, look at Joseph, we'll be seeing him down the road, but he didn't mind allowing Joseph to be despised by his brothers, thrown in the pit, uh, sold into slavery, uh, then thrown into jail, the whole bit. And God allowed that to happen. That was part of God's will. Now, it wasn't comfortable at the time. And then finally, when there was that terrifying day when Joseph uh, introduces himself to his brothers who couldn't stand him, and now his brothers become extremely fearful as to what's going to happen, that Joseph shows that over the passage of time, when these things were happening, it wasn't fun. It wasn't a joyful time. He wasn't looking at this and writing in his diary, had another great day today in, in Pharaoh's jail. But when it comes to the end of the day, what does he say? God meant it for good. And now we have Jacob, and he's been living in this, this land, it's a pagan land, a foreign land, and it's time for him to move. And he needs a little bit of dynamite here. He's not moving. He's lingering along. He's got this little uh, agreement that he's worked out. And all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to him. And he comes to him in the authority of a sovereign God with an order. Return, verse 3, to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. And then he gives the indisputable promise that God's people are to go with, and it is this, I will be with you. It's a promise that Jesus gave to his disciples, you recall, when he gives the Great Commission, and he tells them to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. And then what does he say? And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I am always with you. And God comes to, to this man Jacob, and he comes with that promise. I am with you. You're going back. You don't know what you're going to see when you get back there. You didn't know what you were going to see when you came down here. But rest assured, 
I am with you. And the promise that we have again and again and again from a covenanting God to his covenant people is the promise of his presence. The Puritans had it right. Thomas Watson, in giving instruction to his pastor students who were very much the elders of his congregation, and then the group got larger and larger and larger because everybody started hearing about Thomas Watson. And Thomas Watson is he's instructing his, his elders and these other elders from other churches, and they're sitting down and they're talking about the leading of the congregation of God into the worship of God, and he says, you must pray for, you must covet the realized presence of God so much so that when you enter the place of worship, you will expect that God is at the front waiting for you to arrive. Wow. You see, when you start telling pastors that, and then pastors start telling their congregation that, and all of a sudden people start to realize God is present in this place, it changes the attitude of the worshiper, for he comes to the realization God is in this place. And Watson covered basically all of England with, with preachers. There was hardly a preacher in England at one time in a five-year period of Thomas Watson's closing years of his life, and he didn't believe in retirement. And it seemed as though every pastor in England had been taught by Thomas Watson. And you start reading Jeremiah Burroughs, and he's talking about worship, and he refers to Thomas Watson. And John Owen refers to Thomas Watson. And Thomas Brooks refers to Thomas Watson. And on and on and on the list could go. It's like a who's who of Puritan preachers. And they were teaching and preaching with the expectation, God is surely in this place. And Jacob needed to know that as he's going off into nowhere land, wall-to-wall -wall sand, as he's working his way back home, needed to know these words, I will be with you. The God that brought you down here is with you on the return trip. And so we have this wonderful picture of God giving that kind of promise to him. We have his word. We have his spirit. Whenever we sing number one, and uh, we can't sing number one too often, well, I guess we would get tired of it after a while. But whenever we sing hymn number one, which you probably know what it is, and if you don't, you can have a sneaky peek, but I'll tell you, it's The Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. And, you know, as he's writing, he tells us all about the difficulties and, and what is taking place in the world around, and he says this in the last stanza, and he's speaking of the word of God. He says, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Good King James language. Actually, it's before King James. Who with us sideth. God is on our side. He's, he's beside us. He's with us. He's leading us. And he says at the end, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There was a song. I don't know if it's a Gaither song. Years and years ago. And, and it was, he's still the king of kings and lord of all. I know you know it, yeah. We're, we're contemporaries, we know all these songs. And it is true. Though, this, though there are these times when the world seems powerful and strong and the whole thing is falling apart at the seams and you say to yourself, this is getting worse 
and worse and worse and worse. What does that do to the sovereignty of God? Nothing. Nothing. God is not less sovereign because we have some unregenerates who are running the country and running the province. God is not less sovereign. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of glory. And he will win the final day and he will be honored. And we have Jacob in this pagan land and he has to get out. Where am I going? You're going home. How am I going to get there? Don't worry. I'm with you. You'll get there. And so we have this wonderful preparation that takes place. And, and it's a surprise preparation because all of a sudden we see Jacob emerging as a leader. I, I don't know about you, but I'm not really impressed with Jacob as a leader. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a sneak. He lied to his father. He was, he was the key uh, instrument in terms of the dividing of, of, of his father and his mom. Dad had a boy and mom had a boy. Dad's boy was Esau and he was a rugged guy that liked NFL football. And, and Jacob, he had a great stamp collection. He was the indoor kind of guy. And mom liked him because when the dishes needed doing he was going to be around to help. There's nothing wrong with that. I delighted in helping my mom do dishes. It was one of the most precious times we had. And that's all well and good. But here's this great divide in the family. And, and, and Jacob does not seem to be an impressive man. Does not seem to be an impressive leader. And all of a sudden, we have these particular little points in his life. One of them on the way to Uncle Laban when he's in the desert... And he has that experience of the recovenanting of God to him and reminding him, you are mine and you are mine by covenant. And you recall how Jacob sets up a place in the wilderness and it's called Bethel. And we pointed, I remember the night that uh, Brother Caleb read that and I said at that time, that's the way you pronounce it. It's not Bethel, it's Bethel. El is God. Beth is the house of. This is the house of God. And this place where Jacob met God in the wilderness, there was that recognition that this is the place where God is. Now, that was about the last real glimpse of leadership that we saw in the man. And then we saw him working hard uh, for Leah, the surprise of his life, and then working seven years more for Rachel, the love of his life. So he had the, the love of his life and the surprise of his life, and it was not pretty. But we're, we see something in this passage that is absolutely fascinating, and I don't know whether you recognized it or not, but here it is, verse 4. I know it's not in the Iwana memory work, but here it is. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah. The phrase Rachel and Leah occurs only one chapter in all of Scripture. You're looking at it. That's it. These two were entities. They were en enemies with one another. They were married to the same man. What a wretched arrangement that was. And here they are. And all of a sudden, Jacob has to become the head of his house, which is composed of two wives 
sisters of one another. And this is the only time where we really see any evidence of, of Jacob treating them as equals. Now that's sad. The whole thing is sad. It's tragic. But it is at this point where he comes to the fore, if you will, and is treating them as though they are real people and equals. And as a result, he calls them and he's going to speak to them. And he's going to speak to them uh, as one, if you will. And he brings them and he lays out the truth. And we learn a little something about the ladies as well on this. He calls and sends for Rachel and Leah and says to them in verse 5, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly to me as it formerly was. And then he goes on and he says, You know, I have served your father with all my strength. They surely do know that they served their father because they were part of the earnings of his labors. And then he talks about his, about his father-in-law and how he says, your father has cheated me, changed my wages 10 times and so forth. And then he speaks of God intervening in his life and says, God did not allow him to hurt me. And so he, he speaks and he lays out all that arrangement as to how this had taken place and, and how the, the flock had been composed and, and so forth. And we read about the flock and, and how the flock, verse 8, brought forth speckled. And, and then uh, he spoke, and then the flock striped shall be your wages, and the flock brought forth striped, etc. And we have that picture of how God has been intervening. Jacob was in the flock tending business, but God was the manager of it and was arranging the prosperity of this man Jacob. And it's at that point that as he's laying all of this out that we have this picture as he recounts in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, said to me in a dream, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. And what's happening here? God is reaffirming the covenant that had been first of all introduced to Abraham and then reintroduced to Isaac and introduced in a personal way to Isaac and now had all, already been introduced to Jacob and now God is reestablishing again the covenant that he made. Why is he doing that? Is it because God is wishy-washy and the covenant is subject to change? No. God is doing that because Jacob needed to know each step I am taking is in covenant obedience to my God. I was down in, in Greenville a few years ago. My good friend Henry Barch uh, took me down. We debated the baptism all the way down. And then we gave it a break until we came back. But we had a wonderful time. And there was a special night where uh, the whole congregation, everybody was invited to the sessions. And the man that was speaking that night was speaking of putting our children in remembrance 
of the covenant. In other words, we have, by virtue of being God's people, purchased by the blood of Christ, we have a covenant that has better promises. That's the theme of Hebrews, isn't it? Better promises, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, and all the way through that wonderful book of Hebrews that we're sort of going to be referring to in our, our studies in Leviticus and Sunday in the Sunday school. And all the way through, there's a reminder of the covenant, the covenant, remember the covenant, the covenant with better promises. I will be your God, you will be my people, on your heart, I will write my laws and your sins and your iniquities. I will remember no more. There are no greater words of comfort to one who has been truly convicted by God the Holy Spirit, who has a record behind them longer than their arm. And they're looking at things and they're saying, if my, if my people, if my family, if my congregation, if my neighbors, if my employer, if, if my associates, if my circle of friends... If these people ever had the goods on me, I couldn't face them. That's what sin does, isn't it? Nobody here tonight is going to volunteer to stay after service and recount every sin that you've ever committed and some of the things that, are, uh, things that you are ashamed of. Who's willing to say, I'm giving my top ten tonight after the service if you want to hear it? The good news is this. This is what forgiveness is. The top 10, the top 20, the top 10,000 sins do not haunt the people of God because they have been forgiven. It's finished. I have given them a new heart. I have given them a new start. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And Jacob is being brought back into covenant language to remember God makes promises and he keeps them. And if you look at the passage, there's something else in addition to the fact that the phrase Rachel and Leah shows up, but you also notice something, and it's been a scarcity. It was a scarcity in Rachel's life until last week, and it was a scarcity in Jacob's life, and that was the absence of the presence of God. Things were kind of going on automatic pilot. But you notice in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 9, we are reminded of God. But the God of my father has been with me, verse 5. And, and then God did not allow him, verse 7, God did not allow him to hurt me. And the realization that God has taken away, verse 9, has taken away your father's livestock and so forth. All of a sudden you begin to realize something. God's in the plan. God's in charge. God's in, God is present. And the angel comes, and the affirmation is made in verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. I remind people, and I've reminded you of this, and I've reminded people that have been baptized of this, where to remember that day that if you were baptized here, you have to remember that day when you stood back there and I asked the question, have you repented of your sin and is Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior? Or have you repented of your sin and do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord? 
Have you exercised faith? It doesn't matter what the phraseology is. It all adds up to the same thing. Are you God's child? And the question is asked before I dunk anyone. That question is asked. That question is asked. That is a solemn vow. And when that question is asked, they are to affirm, I have repented of my sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they are never to forget it. I remember when I was baptized, as though it was yesterday, as you well know, I'm absolutely terrified of water. That's why I go to the dry cleaners. I'm afraid of water. And I remember standing there, and I'm sure that I must have swallowed enough of the contents of the baptismal that the water level probably went down after I came out spitting it. But I remember the seriousness of it because I thought the pastor was mad at me. I thought, I thought he was staring. I'm 12 years old, and I'm terrified in the water, and this man is looking me in the eye, and I'm standing there sort of transfixed and shaking at the same time. And I knew right then for sure and certain, this is serious. And here is this vow that's being made. I am the God of Bethel. Now arise, he says in verse 13. Enough of this dilly-dallying. Enough of this stalling of time. Enough of this building up of your, your livestock and all the rest of it. He says, now you arise. Leave the land. Return to the land of your birth. Get up and get going. That's a commission. That's a scary commission. But when God says it's time for you to go, you better go. And God comes to him and tells him that it's time for him to go. So we see God's calling and God's commissioning and God's recovenanting, if you will, with this man Jacob. And he doesn't change a thing. He doesn't change the covenant. He doesn't say, perhaps I was too rigid Perhaps I was a little too harsh on it. Perhaps we need to make some changes on this. Perhaps there's some tweaking that needs to be done. Uh, no. Nothing is changed. The unchanging God doesn't have to go back and say, on second thought, we're going to reduce the requirements of coming to Christ. You just have to be sincere and try hard. No. It's time to go. It's time to go home. Do you remember Country Hoedown? Some of you remember Country Hoedown. Gordy Taft was on it. He played the role of a man called Cousin Clem. And on the weekend, right? Some of you remember, I'm taking city ways. He's living on the farm. And he's taking city ways. And he says, I'm going to the city. And he's dressed, he's got this straw hat, this plaid shirt, one of my favorite colors, plaid. And he's got his overalls and one strap is undone because that's the way it's supposed to be. And he's singing the song, I'm taking city ways, a little high stepping won't do me no harm. I'm taking city ways, but don't you be alarmed. Back on the weekend, I'll be back in the farm. Don't worry, I'm gone, I'll be okay, I'll be unchanged. That's malarkey. You run off into the world, immerse yourself into the world, do some high-stepping with the world, and you won't come back the same if you come back at all. And here's this picture. You've been down here. You were down here. You took a wife. You were down here for a few days. 
You took wife number one, plus a handmaiden thrown in. You took wife number two, plus another handmaiden thrown in. You had turmoil in your family, turmoil with your in-laws. It's been nothing but a disaster. Nevertheless, I blessed you, but this is not where you belong. Go home. And I don't mean Quebec, incidentally. It says, go back. You can't immerse yourself in, in the wickedness of the world and be untarnished. Go. And so as a result, we see that there's that final leaving. Rachel and Leah say to him, do we still have any portion of inheritance in our father's house and so forth? And, and they're asking all sorts of questions about material things. And the most important thing that they needed to come to an understanding of, and the most important thing that Jacob needed to come to an understanding of was this. We're going home. We're going to our real home. We're going to a home that has the historicity of the promises of God upon it. And we're out of here. Now that's the good news. But the, the bad news is this. While the obedience is immediate, and we see it in verse uh, 17, when Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, drove away the livestock, and so forth. There's a downside, and it's this. Jacob left in an insensitive, unkind way. And you say, wow, he had to get out of there. Yeah, he had to get out of there. But he did not have to leave in an insensitive and unkind way. He'll be reproved for that. We haven't time to look at it tonight, but he will be reproved for that. But it comes to the end, and here's God's pronouncement on the way in which he departed, in case you say, well, it can't be that bad. Well, notice what it says in verse 20. Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. He didn't need to flee. What he needed to say was, Myself and my wives, and he did this last week and he didn't follow up on it. Myself and my wives are going home. That's all he had to do. Instead, he did the sneaky thing. Why do you do the sneaky thing? Jacob always does the sneaky things. What do you expect of a man that lies to his father, puts these funny furry things on his arm so it looks like he has hair? What do you expect? It's hard to break the sin habits, isn't it? Hmm? They're, they're sins that easily beset us. How do we know that's true? Because the Bible says so. Lay aside, right? We're to run the race. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to lay aside the encumbrances. Those are those things that in and of themselves are not sinful, but they'll suck our time away. They'll make us waste time. They'll make us unproductive. Where they get rid of those things. And then he says, and the sin that so easily besets us. And you get that picture. Peter draws it in a different way when he talks about Satan being like a, a prowling uh, lion, a beast who's prowling around looking for whom he may devour. And guess who the main course is? And we fall into the same sins over and over and over again. You wake up in the morning and say, 
I've thought on my ways. The psalmist tells us that. I've thought on my ways. And I'm turning my feet to follow you. Bang. No turning back. How far do you think you'll get? Without constant vigilance and a, a sword in one hand and a shield in the other hand and prepared to fight every step of the way. If I just go out on a Monday morning and say, it's the beginning of a new week, yippee-dee, I, I listen to Joe Osteen and I'm ready to take on the world. I get steamrollered down in less than two minutes. I'm not sustained by hyper-celebrity preaching. We're sustained by the power and spirit of God. And we're to follow in his ways. And it's a battle. It's warfare. Why else would Paul tell us to put on the spiritual armor if it was just sort of to go into the trophy case? It's war. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And just when you think that you've been wrestling with this sin and you've been wrestling and wrestling and wrestling and you have some sense of victory and you say, oh, I'm so glad that one's behind me. Yeah, it just threw itself into reverse and it got you from the opposite end. And Jacob is struggling as a cheater, as a liar, as a conniver. And despite all of that, he has the blessing of God upon him. You see, God has never blessed you and myself because of us. He blesses us because of who he is, not who we are. And God blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses. That's why we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. And Jacob couldn't resist one more little sin before he left. That was the sin. The other one would deal more next week, but it's found here, so we have to mention it, and that is this. Verse 19, Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. Now, the realization is this. Why'd she do that? Because that's her environment. She comes from a pagan environment. Household idols, that was life in her land. That was life in her household. And, and Laban had collected a whole bunch of little gods that he had set up. Now, you know, we kind of have little gods in our lives too, don't we? Hmm? I'm always fascinated when, when I see how quickly. Remember Matt Dillon and Gunsmoke? How fast he would be standing there. And I honestly thought the other guy drew first. My mother had a theory that Matt Dillon's bullet went faster. There he is, and he draws. Now here's our context of, of idols. Here we are, and we draw, and we're texting. I've got to do this. I've got to get this message. I'm standing at the bus stop. The bus is coming nearer. Well, the bus just ran over my foot. I mean, people were, were into this kind of stuff, and we've got to have this. We have to have the next thing that's there, the next car, the next clothes, the next fashion, the next outlandish thing that comes down the pike, and we hang on to this stuff with a death grip. You say, well, it's not the same. Oh, yes, it is. It consumes time. It consumes our attention. 
We feel that we need it. She felt she needed these household idols. She had a shopping cart full of them. And away she goes. That's why when we're talking about Leviticus, you remember? That Exodus was about getting out of Egypt and, and that physical escape. But it takes the book of Leviticus to get the Egypt out of them on the inside. Exodus was a geographic departure. Leviticus is a theological departure where all the trappings of Egypt have to be left behind. Don't you love the testimony of Moses? Hmm? When you're reading along, in, in, they call it the Hall of Fame chapter, and I'm always amazed at who made the hall, you know, like Rahab and whatnot. And you just say, if you don't believe that God's a God of mercy, just start reading some of those, never thought they'd be there, kind of names that are on that. But then you get down to Moses. And what's the testimony of Moses? He chose to endure the ridicule, the pain, the suffering with God's people rather than to enjoy sin for a season. The problem of our culture is, I try to sin for a season, but just a little season, and it becomes life-dominating. And if God hadn't cornered this man Jacob, then he would have said, I've got it good here. I'm maintaining my, my sense of religion here. Uh, I believe in God here. And I think we can sort of mend fences with my father-in-law and his sons that don't like me. And we can kind of make it all right. And the only thing that's wrong is this. It's all wrong. It's not God's will. The call to be separate not only separates us from the world, separates us onto God. Jacob needed to know that. And I wouldn't be surprised if a whole bunch of us here tonight need to know that in our hearts as well. Let's bow before our Lord, shall we? Father, teach us, Lord, to be rid of our personal household idols on our journey as we follow the Lord. Teach us, our Father, not to look back to a land where we don't belong. Teach us not to be fixated upon the world, the flesh, and the devil. Teach us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We see an imperfect man by the name of Jacob, and we look in the mirror and we see imperfect people. But Jacob was your child. And he was receiving covenant blessings. And we are your children. And we receive blessings that cannot be counted. Blessings that oftentimes are not realized. And we bow before you tonight in humility. And say thank you. Speak to our hearts. Draw us closer, closer, closer to you. And cause every step that we take to be a step that's bringing us closer to glory. 
and further from the world. Speak to the hearts of those who are without Christ. Convict them of their sin. Convince them of their need of Christ. And draw them to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.